1: I'm super, super excited about this guest. It's somebody that uh, I've watched from afar for a long time and seen the cool stuff that he does. So um, we'll just start asking him some questions and get some awesome stories. And uh, we'll start with uh, Bruce Dickinson and the OJ story. Bruce Dickinson and the OJ story.
0: Um, Was What do you want to know about that? I mean, uh, yeah, Bruce the singer of Pop Hoppins, Is that what you're talking about?
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir
0: okay um Bruce Dickinson is not not the singer of Iron Maiden he's a different Bruce Dickinson uh he was the lead singer of a band called Pop Poppins here in Dallas um he and I went out to Los Angeles to try and get them a publishing deal basically we just packed up his car and drove out there um Back then, I mean, there were a ton. There was a lot of buzz around Dallas bands. A lot of Dallas bands were getting signed to major labels and getting deals and all that. And one of the one of the people who was really influential in that was uh, a Dallas DJ named Liza Richardson. She had moved out to uh, Los Angeles, and she was a DJ on KCRW. Uh, and actually, she still is on KCRW in Santa Monica. And anyway, uh, Bruce and I went out to Los Angeles and we stayed with her at her condominium in Brentwood. And, um, we were there when OJ did his thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, we, Bruce and I had gone, uh, out to eat one afternoon looking to get eat for lunch and, and went into this restaurant called Metsaluna and, um, there was a hockey game on TV, but Bruce was a big hockey fan. And I think it was the Stanley Cup playoffs. We were sitting there at the bar, um, watching the hockey game. And one of the servers there, it was, it was during the downtime in the afternoon and between the lunch and the dinner rush, we were literally the only people in there. And one of the servers, uh, who was like folding silverware and doing his daily routine, getting ready for the night rush, came over and talked to us and said hi to us. And, You know, we sat there and shot the shit with him and all that. And then, of course, uh, the next day, O.J., you know, had his, (laughs) did his thing or whatever. And uh, Liza's apartment literally was about 200 yards down the street from Nicole Brown's place. And, um, you know, there were a lot of police helicopters everywhere. Liza's next-door neighbor came over and knocked on her door and and Liza was asleep at the time but the lady looked at me and goes well he did it and I was like who did what you know she's like OJ he he killed his wife he said he was going to do it you know we we had seen him running down the street with a butcher knife before yelling and screaming and you know we figured this kind of thing was just inevitable but apparently that's what all these police helicopters are and we're like wow OJ Simpson the football player you know (laughs) and um of course the next day the, the LA newspaper came out and there were photographs of, of uh, Nicole and, and Ronald Goldman and I like looked at this photo I was like that's the guy we were talking to yesterday at Met Saloon and I showed the picture of Bruce you know and Bruce was like oh my god You know. <laughs> and anyway that's that's what happened I mean we were literally probably 100 yards down the street from it when it happened
1: man that's What's funny about that is you're so much of Dallas music history you're involved in, and then it, that kind of led you to be part of a like a larger piece of American history, which is pretty.
0: It was pure coincidence. I mean, we were, we just happened to you know be at, at that place at that time. You know, it wasn't like you know we were trying to get involved in it or anything like that. We just you know I didn't really make the connection or put two and two together until I saw the newspaper the next day with his photograph in it.
1: Man, that's so insane! So insane. We'll we'll uh, we'll keep it moving. Um, okay. So I came across something where Eazy E wrote you a note about getting laid off for playing his record.
0: Yeah, actually, I I knew Eric pretty well. Um, at the time, I was in a band called Deck and a Dub Team, and uh, there was the A and R person at at Island was this woman named Kim Bowie. And Kim was trying to sign us to a deal at the time. We were kind of doing some demos, and um, we uh, had been going back and forth out to Los Angeles to talk to her, meet with people, meet with record people. And at the same time, Kim had found this rap group performing in a in a roller rink in Compton, California, and it was the early version of NWA. And she was trying to sign them to Island at the same time, too. This was before they had to deal with Priority. And um, she, you know, introduced us to them. We became friends with them, and we were out there doing demos. I borrowed gear from Dre, borrowed 1200 borrowed a, a drum machine, a couple other things. And, uh, you know, we became friends with them. We would go out to eat with them and stuff, and, and, and uh, you know, Kim would put it on the island, <laughs> a credit card, and we took them to eat Thai food for the first time, you know. Uh, we just, you know, we got to know them pretty well. And during that time, um, they were sending me, I also had a radio show here in Dallas on KNON called life is hard. And they were sending me demos that they were doing. And one of the, the first demos for boys in the hood, uh, Eric had sent that to me and literally the afternoon that I received it in the mail, I took it up to the station and played it without really listening to it <laughs> too much beforehand. And, um, Anyway, it obviously was the explicit version of the song, and um, somebody heard it, complained, and I
1: basically got fired for playing it. Wow, that's crazy! So how, that I mean, that's just amazing that you were actually ha- able to have a relationship with Eric uh, Easy E. I guess I can't call him by his first name, but um, man, Erica was
0: the first person I ever knew that had a cell phone. He used wow. to call me every day He would call me and say like, Jeff guess where I am man And I was like where are you Eric And he's like I'm standing on a street corner Talking on a phone that ain't got no wire
1: <laughs> I mean, And insane. you know
0: The the first song that we ever did uh, Six Gun yes. uh, Deck and a Dub team song Dre did the remix for it for 500 bucks
1: Oh my goodness So is that, that's the version That was on the color soundtrack correct
0: Yeah yeah
1: and that is like you've you've been a part of my musical life before I even knew you. I had that soundtrack when I was like eight, got in trouble. Yeah. Definitely, the school said told my mom I shouldn't be watching or listening to anything like that. It's yeah. awesome. and they were you know what was
0: weird about that record. Uh, you know uh, back then, hip hop was still pretty much a brand new thing. and and it was it was really territorial. I mean, there was East Coast rappers and there was West Coast rappers. And, you know, obviously hip-hop started on the East Coast, and there were, you know, a a lot a ton of amazing records uh, uh, that came out from from New York. But what was weird is that soundtrack was on Warner Brothers Records, and the film itself was uh, based in Los Angeles. So it was kind of weird. There's only one song on that record that's really kind of an L.A. gangster rap song, and that's that's Ice-T Colors, I, right. the, the title track. The rest of it is all um, artists from New York. If you notice, it was like Eric B. and Rakim and MC Shan and Roxanne Chante and Big Daddy Kane and all these New York artists. So to me, that was always kind of weird because you know hip-hop being as territorial as it was, most of the people in L.A. who would have been in that movie would have been listening to L.A. stuff. And really, that was before N.W.A. really hit. And L.A. Rap, rap at the time was very different. It wasn't really gangster rap. I mean, Ice-T was really kind of the first one that kind of stuck his toe in the water as a gangster rapper. Most of the... Uh, LA stuff that you would hear on KDAY out there it was like Egyptian Lover and LA Dream Team and that kind of you know dance type shit that Dre right. was doing before they did N.W.A. So that always kind of you know that always kind of freaked me out because just you know the 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 film being set in Los Angeles you know I kind of figured the soundtrack people would have gone for more of a you know an LA hip hop vibe <laughs> <I> and <mean, laughs> we were from Texas you know <laughs> It was kind of, a,
1: kind of a weird deal. No, that, that's actually amazing. Um, it, it didn't make sense at the time, and it doesn't make sense now, but it's just super cool that you guys run on the soundtrack. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage, all the way to the We Just Hit a Million Orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify is there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Um, we'll move along. Okay, so I I uh, am a huge Spike Jones fan. So I, I'll put his name in the um, podcast search and I'll just listen to old interviews. I found one from maybe when podcasts were just getting put up and I don't remember the um, name of the podcast. I'll try to add them to the description. But he was talking about a Dallas rapper named MC 900 Foot Jesus. Yeah, okay. right. Right. Through searching through him, I came across your name as I knew that I was probably going to. And so I just had to come to you and say, did you know anything about him working with Spike at the time? I know he wasn't a big, big deal, but what's the situation on that?
0: Well, yeah, before Mark did MC 900 for Jesus, he did some beats for my band, Producting and Dub Team. Oh, wow. And uh, he and I have known each other forever. He worked at a record store here in town called VVV Records. And uh, he was, you know, like like DDT. DDT was one of the first bands in Dallas that used samplers and drum machines and digital gear and stuff like that. It was all brand new technology. And Mark was also one of those people, too. He was one of the first people in town who got a sampler. So, um, uh, naturally we just kind of hung out and, uh, he did the beats on one of our singles, uh, give up the gold and make it funky money. And that was literally right when he had just started MC 900 for Jesus MC 900 was, uh, was really, really underground. And, uh, you know, it was funny at the time there was a guy, um, uh, I think an hour guy from Los Angeles named Mark Geiger. And Mark uh, was one of the people who was a founder of Lollapalooza. He and Perry Farrell did Lollapalooza. He's a booking agent.
1: At
0: at the time, he was an A&R guy for American Records, which is Rick Rubin's label. Yeah, yeah. And um, Mark heard our DDT demos, and he heard this Cottonmouth, Texas stuff I was doing. And he he played it for Rick in, in Rick's car when they went out to lunch one day. And Rick hated it. He literally pressed the eject button after about 10 seconds and threw it out the window. And then he turned around and signed MC 900 for Jesus, <laughs> which was kind of similar to what we were doing, you know? Absolutely. I thought it was pretty funny.
1: That's that's actually a great story that, I mean, I, I knew that this was going to exceed my expectations. I just uh, really didn't think that it would. <laughs> But, yeah, man, you're you're something special, man. True history, for sure. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. Let's, 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 uh, uh, man, we give a lot of praise on this show. I, there's people that, this is just so I can talk to all the people that I wish I could have a dinner party with, kind of like, so.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, man. So, let's uh keep it rolling. How about Willie Nelson and Supertramp?
0: Okay, um, I was living in Austin down at the time, uh, it was around, I think, 1980 or 81, and a friend of mine uh, was a bartender at a club, uh, kind of a theater spot on Sixth Street called the Ritz. And that night, uh, Supertramp had played at the Frank Irwin Center. They had like a big hit at the time. They were a big radio band. They were huge. I, I really wasn't a big Supertramp fan. I, you know, I don't really know anything about them that much. I had one album of theirs called Crime of the Century a few years prior to that. But I wasn't like a, you know, I wasn't going to the show or anything, you know. But anyway, uh, Dave, who was bartending that night at the Ritz, called me and said, "Hey, you should come down here and hang out, man. Nobody's playing. We're just we're just sitting around playing pinball and shooting the shit." And so I went down there. I rode a moped down there. And uh, around eleven o'clock that night, the guys in Super Tramp just showed up at the front door with gear, and they said they wanted to jam. And we're like, you know, I didn't even really recognize them. I didn't, I couldn't tell who they were, but just by looking at them. We said, yeah, sure, come on in. And so they went up and set up all their shit on stage and started jamming. And then Willie Nelson pulled up in a Mercedes <laughs> and, uh, and pulled his guitar out of the trunk and walked in there and jammed a Supertramp for like an hour for literally like less than 10 people.
1: That, that's a moment in time there, man.
0: It was weird. You wouldn't think those two artists would know each other you know or have ever met or anything but you know at the end of the night they got through Willie threw his, his guitar in the trunk of the car and we sat there and smoked a joint on 6th street you know it's like it was like a week night you know it was like one thirty, two o'clock in the morning there was nobody out there and uh yeah it was like <laughs> Dave and I were looking at each other like wow that just happened
1: <laughs> man that is that is incredible and I guess I kind of want to leave it on that note, just so we have to do another one to see if we can uh, see where this one went, because that was truly amazing. So in a, in a matter of 15 minutes, you told me that you were connected indirectly to the OJ Simpson murder, you knew E.Z.E. e <laughs> and you smoked a joint with Willie Nelson. This might take the cake, man.
0: <laughs> well. You know, I don't know about that. I mean, it's, that's just shit that happened, you know. I didn't really, uh, I didn't do much to make it happen. I was just kind of like Forrest Gump or something, kind of just there. Well,
1: that's, that's and that's why I wanted you on this show. Like I said, we give praise, and I brought you on this show, so I could praise you and just tell you that you've done so much for other people in the Dallas music industry. Um, you can tell by the way that people talk about you and how everyone um you know, gives you so much credit for helping them. You know, on behalf of everybody in the Texas music scene, you know, I can say uh, thank you for doing so much for it and for, uh, you know, the Kessler and just so much that you've done. um, I want to say thank you personally.
0: Well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on.
1: Man, bro, I hope we can do it again in a couple weeks and just uh, make a habit of you telling us cool stories and uh, keeping, you know, the history of Dallas music alive. Sure, sure, no problem. All right, Jeff, you have a great night, man. Thank you again. Uh Oh come here, peace.
0: <laughs> this has been a rogue media podcast.